0: Hello and welcome to this month's edition of Slugger TV. In this month's episode we're going to be looking at the impact of the Irish general election, the new spads who've been appointed in the Executive and also how Storming performing two months on and some of the future challenges facing the Executive. And to go through all these important topics we've got Brendan Mulgrew from MWA Advocate and from the Irish News, Brendan Hughes. Brendan, I just want to go to you first. So obviously we're just more than two weeks on now from the general election that took place down south. Um, what Looked like a relatively predictable uh, election at the start of the campaign. Turned out to be anything but. What did you just make of the end results when all the votes yeah. were counted?
1: Well, the big headline, of course, was the, the, the Sinn Féin surge, and I think that uh, I think it's fair to, to call it that. Um, and if they'd had they stood more candidates now, or hindsight's a great thing, but they would have in all likelihood won a decent uh, extra number of seats above above that which they did win. Um, but we're in a stalemate situation now. Um, the two bigger parties, the more established parties, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, don't seem to know how to react to to the Sinn Féin vote. Nobody seems to be in any big uh, urgent uh, hurry to actually talk about forming a government. Sinn Féin are off having their rallies. It's almost like a lap of honour. For the victory they claim they've won with 24% of the vote, which is a nice little bit of uh, PR management on their part, and they're doing it very, very well. And Micheál Martin and Leo Varadkar, even now, two weeks later, are still seemingly caught in the headlights, not knowing how to respond. Who knows how long it will take to form a government? Who knows what the eventual makeup of the government will be? I happen to think that um, a term uh, a term of office for in which Sinn Féin are the sole, almost, uh, opposition party, and certainly the lead opposition party, um, would suit him very well. If I was in their shoes, I'd be quite happy if the other two formed a government and you had five years. If it went to five years, it may not go to five years, of course. Mm-hmm. But you had a term uh, where you were, you were the sole opposition party you could really build your network of candidates where you didn't have them in the past you could perhaps refine some of the policies you offered to the electorate last time round, which may not be all that deliverable um, and who knows where they would be in five years time they certainly be the favourites to be the main party Okay. So the
0: uh, actual results turned out Sinn Féin came first, 24.5% of the vote, then you had Fianna Fáil uh, on 22.2% of the vote and then Fianna Gael on 20.9% so the part, main
1: parties were relatively close They were close and of course uh, given the nature of the election Sinn Féin are trumpeting the percentage of vote but what counts uh, in, in the electoral system that exists South is number of seats and mm-hmm. uh, of course so Fianna would be very quick to tell you that they got the, the highest number of seats They got the seats. highest
0: number of seats so th- th- 38, 37 for yeah. Sinn Féin and 35 for but they only
2: got the highest number of seats based on the fact that they had the Cancordia uh, right? uh, Going yeah, Cancordia,
0: yeah. So, so they both elected the same number of, of TDs as well the reaction to Sinn Féin's result has dominated the tenor and colour in fact we've actually focused more on the reaction within yeah, the media yeah. rather than who's actually going to put together yeah, a government. Yeah. What, do you, what have you made of of the reaction from both the media and also just in terms of, in terms of other things to Sinn Féin's I think
1: that? it's been very interesting to watch how the other political parties have responded down south and uh, both Michal Martin and Leo Faradkar um, have been uh, pointing to Sinn Féin's past uh, and, and trying, even post-election, certainly pre-the election, the past uh, and their association with the IRA, and we all know the, the background, including the Paul Quinn murder, uh, featured very, very heavily in the run to the election. Um, it has now carried on since then, to the point... And Leo Varadkar is more guilty of this than, than Micheál Martin. Uh, I think Leo Varadkar's response since the election has been bizarre, very partitionist. Um, and even at the weekend when he tweeted about... Mairead Macdonald should disband the Army Council. Well, neither him nor Sam McCovney were saying that. Uh, in, on the 13th of January, when they were selling the deal upon which our government has been formed, and upon which it's very well and, and uh, acceptable for Sinn Féin to be for Sinn Féin to be in government at Stormont, um, and I, I do, and I actually think it, it it goes down very badly too with certainly with Sinn Féin voters. Obviously, um, I would, I can't see also that that many. People who are maybe casual Fingel supporters or casual Finn supporters would see that there's much merit in continuing to point to Sinn Fein's past now as a reason why they won't go into talks with him. I think it's undemocratic, I think it's partitionist, I think it's wrong. Now, Sinn Fein don't help themselves because we saw in the immediate aftermath of the election, you know, everyone's barred talking about Sinn Fein's past, except for Sinn Fein, because they they and some of their candidates in particular, uh, these frankly stupid and offensive rallying calls and you know, having up their ass as part of your election victory speech it's just daft it is no place whatsoever and I don't think you can have that as your victory speech and then criticise other parties even though I think it's wrong that they do it criticise other parties for continually bringing up your past when you're seen to celebrate that past um, as well but as I said earlier on even now it's, it's, it's over two weeks since the election and the and Fine have not worked out how to respond and if there's the B. If there, we may be headed for another election. If a government can't be formed, there may well be another election in a, in a fairly short space of time. If there was a, if there was another election down south right now, you've got to think that Sinn Féin would would ramp home come very clearly over and above the other two parties and, and the other smaller parties as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. And Brendan, what have you thought of the the media? You work you work in the media. Uh, what have you thought of the the media's reaction? And also, I know Brendan's talked about some of the party political reactions.
2: Well, I think first of all, there has been a lot of criticism from um, some people over how the media covered um, things like the Sinn Féin's past. Um, you know, for example, the the Paul Quinn murder, and um, I think a lot of Sinn Féin supporters would say that it shows a media bias. But I suppose I would not. <laughs> obviously, I would not agree with that. I think that in that particular case, it was the family themselves who were wanting to highlight that case, and they they felt that you know the only way to do that was um, through you know the platform of an election campaign. And I think it that particular case only. Again, the traction and momentum it did is because of the mistakes that Sinn Féin made in its response to that that made it such an election story in the final week of the campaign. So um, I would have some reservations about how people perceive Um, the media, um, its reaction to Sinn Féin's um, rise. In terms of how Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have reacted to this, I think the most surprising thing is that even though Leo Varadkar has gone from being Taoiseach um, of the the largest party to now being um, in third place, um, so essentially losing the election, he is seen in a much stronger position than uh, Micheál Martin at the moment. And I think that ultimately comes down to whenever the... uh, votes were being counted. We had um, Leo Faradkar very um, stridently saying, uh, you know, we we went into this election on a mandate that we were not going to go into government with Sinn Féin, and that's what um, our voters have um, backed us for. Whereas Micheál Martin was a lot more, um, I suppose, uh, sort of leaving the door ajar to see... Um, what would happen down the line and I think that's what Lee Veradgar had pointed to as well during the election campaign that really a lot of people see this as mihol Martin's last opportunity to be Taoiseach and so therefore he would be um, if if it came that he didn't have a good election then there there could potentially be that option with Sinn Féin. However, subsequent to that it seems that uh, the Fianna Fáil and Mihol Martin have um, very much rode back on that position. We saw very, um, very uh, we saw very strident comments that uh, were made um, in the Dáil, on the on the first sitting of the Dáil since the election from Meathall, um, and it seems that they're they're really closing the door on a potential um, coalition with Sinn Féin. Um, but now that his comments are out there, and now that um, you know you've seen the difference in how the two parties are um, are are looking towards Sinn Féin, it really will it could become that the next election is really who is going to be the Sinn Féin government, and then the, the second biggest party will be the party that says we are the most anti sinn Féin or we are the most um, dedicated to not going into government with Sinn Féin. That could potentially be the, the main campaign message of a second election. Okay,
0: Brendan, just talking about that, I mean, obviously it started the campaign, Paul had Fianna Fáil 12 points ahead, Fianna Brexit had just the Brexit negotiations had just concluded Leo Varadkar this is half time seen in a strong position what went wrong for the
1: two parties it's an interesting question and I think that Fine particularly probably had most to lose because yeah I mean six months ago everyone was looking towards Leo Varadkar and Simon Coveney especially and you know certainly amongst Northern Remainers and Northern Nationalists, there was probably an even higher regard for Simon Coveney in the steady way he was dealing with all the Brexit issues, taking people's concerns on board. And I would have thought that they were going out of government and into the election on something of a high. Then we had the first... Outlier poll, as it turned out to be, which had fate of all streets ahead uh, of the other parties. And they tried to sell, those two s- tried to sell this as a Brexit election, as a need for continuity around Brexit, continuity around the economy as well. And it turned out that this was finally the election down south where people said, That's great, we've got a good economy and full employment, but look at these people that are being left behind. And, you know, young people who can't afford to buy houses, can't get on a property ladder, can't afford to rent uh, houses, not just in Dublin, but you know, in, in towns uh, outside of, of Dublin as well. And all of that, this was the election where it finally came home. Now, as well, that hasn't happened with Sinn Féin in the past. I think that would not have happened under Gerry Adams' leadership. That just was, it had to, he had to go, uh, he had to be off the stage as leader for that to happen, and Mary Lee McDonald Macdonald has assumed that mantle. And she performed well Others within Sinn Féin around the media performance performed even better than that. Now, McDonald, McDon, I think, has had a great post election. I was coming out of these, the rallies, etc., very well. Uh, but I think people like Owen O'Brien and Pierre performed very, very well in and up to the election. And they were talking like people that were waiting to go into government, that were ready to go into government. So, at a certain level, Sinn Féin had a very polished, media performance even though they were excluded from the set-piece debates until uh, uh until that last week when Mary Lou mcdonald performed as well as the other two uh, not any better not any worse uh, but as well as the other two party leaders i think they uh i think that finna and finnegale they, they got the mood of the country wrong and they got the mood of the electorate wrong and they thought that brexit was a higher issue than it turned out to be it almost seems down south now is brexit's history it's over in the with. We need to look on and look more inwardly about how we're going to treat people and how we're going to create a more just and, and, and equitable society. Not a bad message to be prevalent, I know, as opposed to, you know, full employment and let's get the big multinationals in here to the to the dismissal of everything else. So I think that's quite a, quite an important outcome. Okay.
2: Well, I think, first of all, for Finnegan really they overestimated how much Brexit meant to people in the yeah. South. For, for clarity, the exit poll showed, I think, just 2% of yes. voters
0: were, were valued it as an issue.
2: It looks really as though they really should have called this election um, last year, like around the time of the European and Council elections and, and had the elections at that point, because we saw that um, Sinn Féin had a very bad election um, in both of those polls. Um, and that seems to have been as a result of their approach on Brexit. Uh, I think a lot of people in the South were, were looking towards Westminster at that time, seeing the influence the DUP had and were just simply wondering why uh, you know, Sinn Féin representatives didn't seem to be making an impact in, in that arena um, and I think that really suppressed um, Sinn Féin's popularity at that time. But once uh, Fine Gael had effectively as, as they see it, um, solved the, the Brexit issue or at least got it over and um, won line anyway um, and made sure there was no um, hard border on the island of Ireland, uh, then you know, the issue just becomes a non-entity and really a lot of the, part- the other parties were saying that you know, the, the Brexit strategy of the Republic will not change under a, a new government and I think a lot of voters felt that way. I think both of the parties, um, I suppose, fail to understand the significance of both health and housing as issues going into this election. And particularly for Fianna Fáil, I think that they um, fail to pick up on how good uh, a rent freeze as a, a policy seemed to go down um, among voters. And um, if they had chosen that policy from the from the outset, regardless of how they feel it could, whether or not it can be implemented, they say it can't be implemented without a constitutional. Um, amendment Um, but if they had picked up that policy perhaps Sinn Féin may not have seen the gains that they did and and perhaps Sinn Féin wouldn't have been able to differentiate themselves as they have been able to um, from Fianna Fáil. Um, I suppose another big issue about this is that um, voters have seen, even though there was a confidence and supply deal between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, voters have seen both of them as being in government together and Sinn Féin and other parties have been able to hammer home that message and say that if you're against Fine policies, then really Fáil is the Fáil have been the ones who have been propping them up and that really has, uh, uh, I suppose, hit them in the election. OK,
0: okay. we'll move on to uh, another uh, topic, of course, obviously... Um, uh, the reformation of the executive and Brendan I'm going to go to you first on this because obviously uh, special advisors were mm-hmm. announced two weeks ago and of course you were a former special advisor in the Department of Finance. What have you made of
1: again the debate around special advisors? Is it contrived? Is it overhyped? I think the debate around special advisors has been dictated really by RHI. Um, by the role the Special Advisors are seen to have played in RHI and all of that is yet to, in, in the coming days that will now be brought into light with the findings of the inquiry but uh, nobody goes out of the RHI inquiry well uh, and that includes civil service as well as politicians and certainly Special Advisors of, of a certain uh, and those particularly belong to the, to the Um and that was that's, and, and there's always been questions about the number of them, and, and people throw up issues around. You know, we've got more than the, the government of Wales, more than ten Downing Street. They're on higher salaries than their ministers, so the average the average person on the street, especially spad, became a, a, a nasty word. You know, it was like a, a, an insult to call to refer to someone, especially if spad. But the fact is, I still maintain the view that they are a necessary part of of government. They do help to if if they work. As they are supposed to work, they do help ensure a smoother government machine. That uh, the relations between the parties and the departments, and the, between departments themselves, and between ministers themselves, can work more smoothly if the spads are carrying out the role that they're employed to do. And remember, you know, they've got very specific roles, which is about represent uh, linking the minister with the department, being the link between the minister and the party, and being the link between the other. SPADs, the other ministerial representatives uh, as well. So I think it's good that the numbers were cut down. I think they could have been cut down further. I think we're still overloaded with SPADs in the executive office or OFM, DFM. Um, But I would maintain that uh, a minister does require uh, a special advisor. I think they carry a necessary function. Um, and yeah, it's sort of populist almost, and expected by some people to throw barbs uh, at SPADs merely because they exist. But I think they're there for a reason. The fact is that the less we see of them, the better, and the less we hear from them, the better. They shouldn't be to the fore, to the yeah. forefront. They should be in the background. And let's hope that they stay in the background, but do a good job and help ensure better delivery of government within Stormont.
0: Yeah, eight hundred and seventy-six thousand pounds per year. That is down from the SPAD bill before of just over one point one million. Uh, there are 14 SPADs in total with an average salary of £62,000. Brendan, value for money?
2: I think that there have been some improvements made to the SPAD culture at Stormont. Um, we have seen that the executive office have voluntarily, on each side, reduced their number of SPAds from four to three each. So three for First Minister's side and three for the Deputy First Minister's side. That isn't a legislative change; that's a voluntary change that they've made. So potentially they could appoint further SPAds further down the line whenever it's less of a controversial issue. But for now, that's a good thing. We've also seen, as a result of the New Decade, New Approach deal and what the executive have um, put through, a number of changes. Which which I think will mean that SPADs are better scrutinised. For example, um, whenever they have meetings with outside bodies, they'll have to register that. When they have any sort of declarations of interest, they need to be put on a register as well so the public are able to see this. And I think that is that is very important, given what we've seen in the RHI inquiry involving some SPADs and I suppose their links to, to um, people involved in uh, poultry farming and Boy Park and that sort of thing. Um, it really is important that those sorts of... Um, business and commercial interests are to the fore and that the public are able to scrutinise them. However, I think to the general public, this will still be seen as mainly special advisors are uh, basically people in the main who are faithful to the party and that's why they're given the job rather than um, actual expertise bringing it into the department to make government work better and I think that that potentially is something that this crop of special advisors need to ensure that they can um, address in the next couple of years so that you know special advisors um, has a better name and I think in terms of the point of um, if we uh, don't have them in in publicity, that is, a, that is a good thing, because it means that they're doing their jobs correctly. We really shouldn't know who these people are, and we shouldn't have to um, discuss what their salaries are and what their names are, and they, they shouldn't be making comments on Twitter. They should, re- should really be in the background, and then that means that we're focusing on ensuring that the minister is doing their job uh, correctly in each department. Another noteworthy
0: thing was the turnover in SPADs. I mean, there are very few who've been held over from the previous Stormont uh, era. What do you make of that? Is that a positive thing or is that really the parties just trying to really put, uh, put new people?
1: Yeah. It may have come about as a response to the criticism that followed the SPAD regime uh, in the last round of the executives. And that may be why some of the parties have made changes. Um, but I think it's a good thing, whatever the motivation is for it, I think it's a good thing that there are fresh faces uh, amongst the SPAD teams. You know, this is a new decade, a new approach Uh, it's a new form of government that we're all going to get along better apparently Uh, and we all hope that's the case and we hope that the foundations to this assembly and this executive are are more firm than they were in the past. Uh, So in that regard I think a new team of SPADs can help push along a fresh agenda uh, with a, with what is a fresh team of ministers now the ministers have got some very experienced um, ministers in there you know, Edmund Putz I think is on his third or maybe fourth portfolio now uh, Arden Foster has never been a backbench MLA she's always been uh, in office but um you know, Nicola Mallon and Robin Swan. Uh, Naomi Long is a very experienced politician, but th- this is a new role for her. So there are new faces around the executive field, which I think is great. And I think the majority of female ministers, yep. isn't that the case That's as well? Not, I, think, yeah. I, think, I think it's a great thing as well. So there, there is an, there's an air of, 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 of newness about this, this, this group of ministers, this executive, um, along with the, the old hands, that old football thing. It's a nice blend of... Uh, Youth and experience, <laughs> energy and experience. I think, therefore, the fact that we've got a, a relatively fresh team of special advisors, I think that's important too. What do you think of the the people?
2: Well, from looking at their their backgrounds, a lot of them seem to have, uh, supposed suppose, been involved in the party. Uh, there's a lot of uh, people who worked um, behind the scenes in in their parties previously. Um, For so clarity, they are supposed to try the code, They're try. They're supposed
0: to try and make a link between the the, the department that they're in and some expertise in. In, in within that department.
2: Yes. Yep. Uh-huh. But I think one aspect that I didn't actually talk about, which um, I suppose would be a, an issue in how this goes forward, is that um, the new uh, rules take away any um, sort of prescriptive code as to how and these special advisors are, are appointed. Previously, as we heard in the RHI inquiry, um, the ministers had to sign a document saying that they'd chosen from a pool of candidates and it was their honest choice, et etc., et cetera, for special advisor. But now we basically have a regime whereby... That is totally done away with and um, the parties can choose their special advisors by any means necessary. And that could cause a concern because a lot of the um, problems that occurred um, in relation to the RHI um, scheme was that these special advisers were seen to not have been appointed by their ministers and couldn't be sacked by their ministers, and they seem to have more power and more influence than their ministers. And if we are seeing that some of these spads, and we don't know how the parties have chosen um, their particular special advisers this time around, but going down the line, if we have seen that these spads are actually um, answerable to someone else and not their minister, um, then that could cause problems.
1: I think it's an important part of the revised Code of Conduct this time round that the Minister is accountable and responsible for the activities of their SPAD. I mm-hmm. think that's important that, 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 that it's quite explicitly stated in, in the guidance note that was issued by the Department of Finance. So the Minister is responsible for the actions of the Special Advisor. They can't distance themselves from that, as happened in the past. And I know what Brenton's saying about you know, transparency and, and drawing people from a pool of potential candidates. I, I, I think this is the one occasion where a minister, and I would say the minister rather than the party, and I hope the minister has been involved in this, I think the minister has, has to have such a close working relationship with this bad. I mean, they're going to be in each other's pockets here, not just five days a week, in all no likelihood they'll be in contact seven days a week, uh, and much more so than a, a nine-to-five uh, Monday-to-Friday relationship, working relationship. So I think there is an entitlement now to set aside the usual rules of, of, of open recruitment. I think it's, you're going to have to bring someone in who you trust inherently who you're going to have that working relationship with uh, on that ongoing basis, who is going to, by necessity, come from the same political ideology as you are, That should be fighting with each other uh, all the time over big decisions that need to be made. Now, there's, a, there's an argument to say that the, the SPAD should, their political background doesn't matter, and they should exclusively come from the sector that you're working, so that the Department of Health SPAD could be an ex-consultant or an ex-chief executive of trust. I trust. I, I see that argument. And, and there may be an argument that those people have a role to play advising the executives centrally, um, as opposed to being a party hacker, a party member who's sort of been rewarded for having hung around for long enough. Um, but that's a separate argument, than the argument that says we need to advertise, get a pool of candidates, select the best person. I think there's an entitlement to set that aside for, for, when you're taking on a special advisor. OK,
2: Brent, it's up to the Minister, really, to decide who they want at the end of the day. But I think that the problem here seems to be that they're... A, We don't know really whether the Minister is um, personally choosing their candidate and we've seen how this can play out um, across the water in Westminster, how this can cause problems because we only recently had the Chancellor, um, Sajid Javid, um, decide to... Uh, resigned because um, it seemed or it was reported that Number 10 wanted him to sack his special advisors and to appoint basically people that um, Number 10 was happy with, i.e. so that they could oversee what was going on in the the Chancellor's office. And if that sort of thing is happening further down the line at Stormont, then that's obviously, obviously going to cause problems. Um, I think you know there is um, room to be optimistic here because of some of the changes that have been made, um, and we hope to see those come to fruition. But I think that one of the um, things that makes me sceptical about this is that whenever um, we are promised um, greater scrutiny and greater um, transparency of special advisers, then we see that whenever they are announced. They were released by the Department of Finance at um, a couple of minutes before 5pm on a Friday, which, as any good PR person will know, is the the time really that you release things if you want to bury bad news or you don't want it to cause much of a fuss. So if if that's what um, to the new executive transparency means, then I think that we have cause for concern.
1: I think that's that's absolutely right. That was the wrong thing to do for all sorts of reasons. And if it is an attempt to to bury bad news or take out the trash, uh, it's so transparently so that it's a mistake to do it that way. So whatever way you look at it, it they should have been upfront. They should have been. It should have been earlier. Yeah. Was, if that was a signal of the new Stormont and the new transparent, open uh, Stormont, uh, that was a bad move. Uh, yeah. That, actually, that was a, that was a pity that it was done that way. On Stormont itself. Now, just to...
0: Run through it's the budget is coming next month. conor yeah. Murphy delivers his first budget. But we've seen the demands from some of the myths. Robin Swan, six hundred million pounds. We had senior civil servants in the Department of Infrastructure talking about Translink running out of money, Nicola Mallin making pitches to just keep the yeah. lights on. The challenges in front of this executive are huge.
1: They're huge. they we shouldn't underestimate them. And the pledges that are contained within the, the new decade new approach, uh, if every one of them was to be funded, well, they simply won't be. They simply won't be funded. And there are some very specific things in there. But, of course, I made it very hard for any party not to go into government on the back of that deal. So, but but we, we know, I suppose we know all that. We, they face huge challenges. They haven't been around long enough yet to make a judgment as to how well they're going to work together. I thought it was a bit disappointing at the start of this mandate when uh, some ministers were flagging up potential sources of funds. So, for example, Edwin Poots mentioned water charges. His own party leader shot that down within an hour. Uh, Artie Foster then mentioned tuition fees. Michelle O'Neill shut that down on the same day. Um, and you sort of think to yourself, guys, have these conversations with each other around the table before you flag them up in public because the, the, early, the early messages from the executive weren't good. They weren't joined up. Uh, and the different parties, or in one case, different people within the same party, argued with each other publicly. That was a bad start. But the biggest challenge is to come. And the budget is the first real major challenge. And we know at the end of this month, um, high on earth well first of all we know what additional money if any uh, we are going to get through the Black Grant here we'll get something we'll get something on the back of the 11th of March UK budget be it read across sort of HS2 maybe some extra money for capital spend which will allow some decisions to be made but Huge challenges, and I think what we need to watch out for, is how the smaller parties and their departments are treated in this budget. So Nicola Mallon, Naomi Long and Robin Swan. How will they come out of this budget? Now, maybe Robin Swan is sort of protected a wee bit. There's Christopher Stauffer made interesting noises this week around he needs political cover for the hard choices ahead. It's going to be fascinating to see how that, how that works out. But also, you know, if the executive is going to t- tackle uh, climate change, you cannot do that and underfund public transport. That just doesn't add up in any way. So will there be a, a joined-up approach to issues like that around climate change and the need to, to invest in public services which, which deliver sustainability and environmentally friendly travel and things like that? So uh, I think the budget is the first major test, and we all will all be watching that with interest. Okay.
2: I think that's a given. Yes, the budget is definitely going to be the first major test. At the moment, we are seeing, um, I suppose, a bit of like sort of shadow boxing. Really, Um, we have, we know that there are big um, budgetary pressures at all all departments and in many different sectors within those departments. But um, we also know that each department wants to try and extract as much money as possible from the Department of Finance as much as they can. So obviously, a lot of these public bodies and um, within the departments there will be um, these soundings as to some of the budgetary pressures that they're facing as we've seen in terms of the housing executive, in terms of TransLink and we've also seen in terms of NI water as well so um, there will be this move to try and get as much money as possible. And really, as you say, it depends on how um, Conor Murphy and how the executive as a whole reacts to that. Um, If this really is a new era era and a new partnership between five parties, then will the money be shared out um, and and seen by all the parties as a fair fair sharing out of, of the spoils? or um, will it really go to both the DUP and Sinn Féin again, and will that cause uh, problems in terms of how the executive can um, continue on as a five-party five executive?
0: Well, we'll wait and see we'll, for next month, see what Conor Murphy delivers. Thank you so very much for, uh, for going through everything. That is it for this month's edition of Slugger TV. We'll be back next month. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with everything on sluggerotool.com. Thank you for watching.